Taxes are complicated. Trust the professionals at J.E. Wiggins to be ready to help you. Marriage, new baby, or recently retired, J.E. Wiggins is there every step of the way to make sure you get the best possible tax service. Visit jewiggins.com for a location near you. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 38, The World Bank and International Monetary Fund, 1945 to 1950. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. Last episode, we examined the creation and establishment of the United Nations. In this episode, we're going to examine the creation of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund in the early Cold War. Like the UN, the World Bank and IMF have come under harsh criticism, both from the left and the right. Many argued that the IMF and World Bank, although allegedly established to help the peoples of the developing world, are parasitic bodies of neocolonialism, which are controlled by Western banks and exploit the peoples of the developing world via debt and the development projects that don't help indigenous people but benefit Western corporations. They also point to the unfair voting power and structure of the IMF and World Bank, where Western nations hold more votes than those in the developing world. Others in the West see the bank and the IMF as part of a rigged system, which enriches a small global elite, while the vast majority of people in the West and the developing world suffer. In this episode, I will illustrate the thoughts behind the creation of the World Bank and IMF, the original purpose of the World Bank and the IMF, and its first few years during the Cold War. In later episodes about the world economy of the 1950s and 1960s, As we progress through the Cold War, we'll have additional episodes examining the role of the IMF and World Bank during the period of the Cold War. If you recall, we touched on both the IMF and World Bank back in Episode 7 about capitalism during the Cold War. Before we examine the creation of the IMF and World Bank, it's important to remember what the world economy looked like before the First World War from about the 1840s to 1914, or what some have called the first era of globalization. This age of globalization was facilitated by three main forces, industrialization, steam power, and the British Empire. Industrialization made the production of goods quicker by magnitudes. Things like rifles and furniture, which used to require craftsmen and months of time to make, could now be produced in the space of a few days. Other industrial era technologies, such as the telegraph, made it possible for regions to communicate with each other in hours or minutes versus sending messages which took days or weeks to reach their audience. Investors in London could invest around the world without leaving home. The Industrial Revolution created a surplus of goods which required access to markets to sell these goods and for raw materials. English goods found their way all over the world and markets as diverse as America and India, whereas Indian and Alabama found themselves exporting crops like cotton to mills in England. The other force which facilitated much of this trade was steam power. Trains and steamships cut distances in half, speeding up the transportation of goods, raw materials, and workers to markets. It also greatly enhanced the military capabilities of the European powers to make war, which in turn expanded markets and new regions to exploitation. Finally, the British Empire facilitated the first era of globalization. The strength and size of the British Empire compelled many smaller European empires, such as the Dutch and the Chinese, to embrace free trade. Those that were unwilling to open their markets to British goods and investment were forced, such as the Chinese or the Zulus. 
The British Empire embraced all the technologies of this era. Her navy dominated the world's sea lanes and facilitated the safe passage of goods and peoples throughout her empire. Finally, London became the center of the world economy. The British Empire, through the stability and growth of its economy, also encouraged many merchants to invest in the pounds sterling and British bonds. London became a haven for capital and was free of the political upheavals that raged throughout 19th century Europe. The British gold standard had become the world's reserve currency. It is important to note that before the rise of Great Britain, China and its silver standard had dominated the world economy. The gold standard had evolved out of a variety of factors, most famously when Sir Isaac Newton, as the master of the mint, had set a low gold price for silver, inadvertently causing all but the very worn and clipped silver coins to disappear from circulation. With the growth of the British Empire in the 19th century, more and more merchants and countries switched to the British gold standard to facilitate easier trade with the British Empire and other nations who had adopted the system. Many states, though, still did maintain what was called a bimetallic system in which gold and silver were used as currencies, such as the United States, the German states, Russia, Scandinavia, and the Austrian Empire. These nations served as a vital link between those nations such as China, which still used a silver standard, and those like Great Britain on the gold. Maintaining both gold and silver circulation was highly complicated. Speculators would often import silver and trade it for gold to make a profit and export it back out to buy more silver. This would make it difficult for governments to maintain the flow of gold in circulation. Speculators would often import silver into a country until all the gold had been bought up, leaving the nation essentially on a silver standard. Why then, given such difficulties, did many states try and maintain a dual gold-silver system? One theory argues that given the value of gold, it was way too valuable for day-to-day purchases to be used by common folk. A second explanation is that politics encouraged the continuation of a bimetallic system. The presence of silver increased the money supply, and farmers often favored cheap money as it made it easier for them to pay on their loans. I'm sure many of my American listeners are familiar with William Jennings Bryan's Cross of Gold speech. Of those of you who might not be familiar, William Jennings Bryan was a uh, Democratic candidate for president and leader of the populist movement in the middle of America. And many Americans at that time, farmers especially, wanted to use silver uh, versus gold because, again, it was cheaper money and it allowed them to pay on their loans. The creation of the Second Reich in 1871 intensified the push to gold as Germany adopted the gold standard. The German states prior to 1871 had already been trading with Britain extensively, and British investments were delineated in gold. Germany also demanded that France pay its reparations from their defeat in the Franco-Prussian War in gold. Meanwhile, Germany sold their silver on the world market to acquire more gold. Germany had also become the major industrial power in Europe, adding more incentive for the nations in Europe to switch to gold. Compounding this, the world's silver supply had exploded, bringing down its value. The Nevada Comstock load in the 1850s had glutted the world's silver supply. Many economists from the 1870s on quickly associated silver with inflation and spoke out against its continued use, making it difficult to maintain the bimetallic system as nations either had to embrace inflationary policies or embrace the gold standard. Denmark, Holland, Norway, and Sweden all quickly switched over to the gold system. Austria and Italy, though never officially converting, pegged their currencies to the gold standard. 
By 1900, Spain was the only nation in Europe which still used silver. By 1879, the United States was unofficially on the gold standard. Russia and Japan, too, had accepted the gold standard by the end of the 19th century. Even in Latin America, the major supplier of silver in the world, Argentina, Mexico, Peru, Uruguay, had instituted the gold standard. Silver remained the monetary standard only in China and a few Central American countries by the early 20th century. By 1910, investors around the world had the ability to convert their domestic currencies into gold and then invest those funds into markets around the world and then collect profits in the regional currencies and then change them back for gold, making for an almost seamless flow of capital around the world, most of which could be done via the telegraph without physically leaving London, Paris, or Berlin. World War I abruptly ended all this. Gold and silver became a precious resource for purchasing goods and supplies needed for the war effort. Governments issued strict laws prohibiting the flow of precious metals, essentially destroying the gold standard and with it international investment. To raise funds for the war, governments issued bonds and raised taxes. When they lacked the gold to maintain convertibility, they suspended convertibility or the ability to trade paper currencies for gold and issued fiat currencies or money backed by the faith investors have in a nation. The creation of so many fiat currencies over a short period of time caused exchange rights to vary widely. Of the major economies, only the American dollar remained convertible to gold. Although controls were dismantled quickly after the war, it took years before most nations restored convertibility to gold. A notable feature of the interwar period was the floating of currencies. The exchange rate between currencies fluctuated widely. Changes in the market or political crises could send fiat currencies booming or crashing in a matter of weeks or months. The French franc, for example, only purchased one-fifth of the number of dollars as it had before the war. With domestic opposition to raising taxes and government spending cuts, Austria, Germany, Hungary, and Poland used inflationary policies fueled by fiat money to finance their governments and pay their war debts. This destabilized their economies and stoked political unrest. The introduction of the Dawes Act in 1924, which provided a loan for Germany and structured her reparations payments, along with the issuing of new currencies, helped to stabilize the economies of Central Europe. Despite this, Europe was still struggling. France, Belgium, and Italy had inflation issues of their own. Great Britain was saddled with chronic balance of payment deficits and was hemorrhaging gold. In October 1929, the American stock market crashed. By the summer of 1931, Austria and Germany suffered banking crises and runs on the banks. The governments of Europe, including Great Britain, all quickly suspended convertibility. By the summer of 1932, the international monetary system had splintered into three blocks. The remnants of the gold standard led by the United States, the sterling pound region that composed the British Empire and countries which pegged their currencies to the pound, and Eastern and Central Europe led by Germany that attempted to use government controls to control exchange rates. The world had seen depressions before, such as the Long Depression, 1873 to 1896, or the Depression of 1907, but nothing before or since has come close to the severity of the Great Depression. U.S. industrial production fell by a staggering 48% between 1929 and 1932. German industrial production fell by 39%. Unemployment soared to 25% in the United States and 44% in Germany. Between 1929 and 1932, worldwide GDP fell by an estimated 15%. 
When governments tried to increase the money supply to try and fight the depression, speculators began selling the nation's currencies to avoid capital losses, ensuring a return to rampant inflation. Governments began to hoard gold, driving up its value and weakening the value of their fiat currencies. The credit markets quickly seized up as banks were hesitant to loan money. Small companies were forced to curtail operations and cut expenses, which included letting workers go as they lacked working capital loans. Central banks were aware of these problems, but feared injecting liquidity into the market would help push up inflation. As we reviewed in our last episode, many believed that the economic instability and the depression of the 1930s led to the spread of radical politics, which in turn led to the Second World War. Fears were great as well that the end of World War II might lead to the resumption of the Great Depression, which had continued from 1929 until the beginning of World War II in most places. Indeed, the poor economic conditions of 1946, as we've seen in past episodes, helped to stoke these fears. At the founding of the UN Charter in San Francisco, the Allies had agreed to the creation of the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, and the World Bank to combat the possibility of a return or another future Great Depression. To do this, the IMF and World Bank would battle economic nationalism and trade barriers, while the UN, through the Security Council, would attempt to minimize the threat and spread of war. During the war and throughout the period of the Cold War and into the first years of the 21st century, many if not most American intellectuals and economists believe that free trade, unhampered by high tariffs, trade barriers, and unfair economic competition would result in a more peaceful and democratic world. During the mid to late 1940s, these ideas ran counter to the traditional isolationist protectionist views that had dominated American markets for over a century. Nevertheless, enthusiasm for free trade had grown over the course of the war, and it was a popular belief that free trade was in America's interest. There were practical reasons behind this change in perspective. Many American industries held a technological edge over their competitors in foreign markets. Second, American farmers were profiting from the war in Europe with their sale of foodstuffs. They didn't want to see those markets closed to exports after the war. American farmers had profited from the First World War, but had seen hard times with the resumption of tariffs and didn't want a repeat of the 1920s. American industry would also have much to gain from free trade as well. European industry and that of Japan had been devastated by the war. Post-war GDP for Europeans, minus Italy and Japan, was less than four-fifths of what it had been in 1939. 1946 levels were lower than those of 1920s. Conditions in Germany and Italy were even worse. Industrial production in Germany in 1946 was one-third of what it had been in 1936, and overall output per person in the defeated Axis was less than half of what it had been before the war. In Italy and Japan, 1946 levels were roughly equivalent to those of 1910. In Germany, 1890, and Austria, 1870. The war in Europe had thrown the winners back economically by some 25 years, and the vanquished by some 40 to 75 years. The American economy, in contrast, had grown by 50%. In 1939, the economy was about half the size of Europe, Japan, and the Soviet Union combined. By 1946, it was larger than all these economies combined. The United States produced more steel than Germany, Britain, and the Soviet Union combined. The United States had also supplanted the British in trade, finance, and investment. The dollar reigned supreme. It was no longer shared leadership with the pound and franc. Exports in 1945 were twice as important as they had been to American industry in the 1930s. 
while imported competition had virtually disappeared. This change in economic conditions altered the views of Congress, who was now more interested in finding markets for American goods than they were concerned about foreign competitors. American industry and farmers had also suffered as a result of tariffs during the Depression. Britain's imperial trading bloc had critically hurt the American economy as the British Empire was America's largest trading partner. As an example, under pressure from American farmers, Congress had raised the tariff on foreign eggs from 8 to 10 cents. This reduced the number of of Canadian eggs coming into American markets by 40%. The British imperial trading bloc, which included Canada, responded by raising their taxes on eggs from 3 to 10 cents. This This drove down the large American egg exports to Canada by 98%, from 11 million to just under 200,000. It became clear as the war dragged on that American trade would face very little competition as Europe and Asian industries had been severely damaged and many American businessmen wanted to use the war and the British need for American support as an opportunity to get Britain to reopen her imperial markets to American goods and services. In March 1941, the United States had signed the Lend-Lease Agreement with the British in which the U.S. Lend used and obsolete American military equipment to the British over the objections of the isolationists. In Roosevelt's famous analogy, the United States lending arms to the British and Chinese was like lending your garden hose to your neighbor when their house was on fire. Republican senator and isolationist Robert Taft said it was more like lending them bubblegum. You weren't expecting to get it back. Lend-Lease promised to avoid war debt for the British as they received equipment and supplies free of charge and allowed America to supply war material without becoming a belligerent. The Americans would in exchange receive greater access to British and imperial markets and access to British bases in the Caribbean. Even with the Lend-Lease and America's entry into the war in December 1941, many Europeans were worried that, as in 1919, after the war, the United States would withdraw again from the international community, even more so after the Republicans swept Congress in the 1946 election. The isolationist wing of the Republican Party though tempered as the result of the war, remained strong. However, there was a group of American businessmen, politicians, and journalists who were committed to the Wilsonian internationalism and free trade, and this time around, they would prevail in structuring a leading role for America and the new world order. The rise of the Soviet Union and communism also encouraged many American Republicans who saw communism as a threat and for the need for American involvement and leadership in the international community. Moreover, unlike in 1919, America, with its economic power, would get its way in any post-war settlement, unlike Versailles, where Wilson had to make compromises in the face of European intransigencies on issue after issue. Now America's Western allies were at the mercy of the United States. Britain and France expressed their concerns forcefully, and sometimes American policymakers listened, but there was no pretense of an equal partnership. Even before America's entry into the war, the British and Americans started to negotiate what the post-war economic order would be. The esteemed and famous John Maynard Keynes represented the British. The Americans were represented by Harry Dexter White, the head of the U.S. Treasury. If you remember from episode 16 on the KGB, White was a Soviet spy. The British and Americans agreed that international finance often got caught up in diplomatic disputes and that international capital movements needed to be separated from international politics. Another point of agreement, 
was that the banks had moved away from investing in infrastructure projects like ports or railroads as the time horizon uh, were long and tied up significant capital and sometimes risky projects. Instead, investors had moved into speculation, investing in stock markets and real estate, attempting to make short-term quick profits with minimal risks. To solve this problem, White and Keynes proposed the creation of a reconstruction and development bank, or what would become the World Bank. The World Bank would be backed by the governments of the major financial powers. Therefore, the bank could borrow on the private market at low rates and relend the, the, the two projects that would facilitate other private investment and economic development. Global monetary policy was a more contested issue. Many bankers, both in New York and London, wanted to return to the gold standard after the war. They argued that government fiscal policy and planning had sabotaged the gold standard, leading to instability in the exchange markets. Nevertheless, leading industrialists and organized labor were hesitant about a return to the, of the gold standard. They did not like the inflexibility of gold, under which governments could not use monetary policy to stimulate the economy. This is the Keynesian theory that by increasing the money supply during an economic downturn or a recession, either through large projects or potentially tax cuts, you could restart the engine of the economy and get capitalists to make more risks in hiring or building projects. What Keynes described as the animal spirits. With the value of money pegged to gold, governments could not increase the money supply as they have to have enough gold on hand to cover at least a portion of their debts should investors wish to exchange their dollars for gold. Politically sensitive bankers were aware that a return to the gold standard was highly unlikely given their unpopularity in the post-depression world and instead opted for a compromise modified dollar backed by gold. The dollar was partially backed by gold but not fully convertible. Each U.S. dollar was, was 135th an ounce of gold, or put another way, one ounce of gold was worth $35, and by 1958, most nations had made their currencies convertible to the dollar, which substituted for gold in the new system. Foreign currencies pegged to the dollar would be a mainstay of the world economy for the next 25 years. By early 1944, Keynes and White had hammered out an agreement between the international stability of the gold-backed dollar and the flexibility of managed currencies. Countries could join the IMF contributing gold and currency to a common fund and link their currencies to gold at a fixed rate. The fund could then lend them money in hard times and currency values could be altered if economic conditions warranted. The plan thus satisfied both the British and the Americans. Currency stability with flexibility, gold backing without rigidity. Controls were permitted to limit international capital flows. They were designed to avert the threat posed by volatile capital flows of the sort that distorted the markets in the 1920s and 30s, yet not so Byzantine or draconian to totally halt the flow of capital. The idea was that the IMF would be the glue that connected the different national markets, creating stability and order in the foreign exchange markets, encouraging the elimination of balance of payment problems, and providing access to international credit. In the event of disruptive shocks to the market, before World War I, there had been no controls on the flow of cap global capital. The interwar period, 1919 to 1939, in contrast, saw a collapse of the system and the widespread implementation of capital controls and the decline of international capital movement. The IMF was intended to relax these controls and gradually revive the flow of international capital. I want to take a quick break here and thank our Patreon supporters and all those who have made donations to the show over the past two years. 
Your financial and motivational support help to keep this show going. Like the World Bank, we are dependent on the donations, and I haven't heard from Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan about them investing the podcast, although I remain hopeful. If you enjoy episodes like these that examine the origins of contemporary organizations like the World Bank, IMF, NATO, or the United Nations in the Cold War, please consider supporting the show at the $5 level on Patreon through the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Tired of these weak sauce commercials and want to get back to the history already? Consider becoming a Patreon supporter so you can get our commercial-free episodes. Now back to the show. That summer, nearly a 1,000 delegates met at the Mount Washington Hotel and the New Hampshire Resort of Brenton Woods. Over the next three weeks, under the leadership of White and Keynes, the delegates finalized plans for the World Bank and IMF and the post-war financial order. The Soviets had sent a delegation, but in the end, they found the final agreement incompatible with their ideological beliefs. Most of the summit was spent on the IMF, but many nations were very interested in the bank, especially the Europeans, who wanted access to the bank's resources for reconstruction, and Latin Americans, whose nations were interested in the bank's funds for development. The actual drafting of the Articles of Agreement was taken up by a smaller committee led by Dean Ackeson, uh, future Secretary of State, and Edward E. Brown, chairman of the First National Bank of Chicago. Keynes took part along with our friend Mendes Franz, who you might remember from our episode on the late French Empire, along with other, many other notable figures. Uh, the European and Latin American countries debated if the primary objective of the bank should be the reconstruction or development, uh, but in the end, the Americans left the bank's primary objective uh, vague. Upon the creation of the bank, the United States was the only nation capable of making its initial investment, and the bank would struggle in the coming years to get the initial investment of the rest of the bank's government shareholders. The World Bank was to be primarily funded by the private market. Government-to-government loans had been necessary during the war, but Britain and the United States wanted to revive private international lending. World Bank loans would be strictly regulated to projects for infrastructure and agricultural development, not for balance of payment issues as so many of the loans of the 1920s had been. The bank would not receive deposits. It was to make loans to governments only. Four-fifths of its assets were not to be loaned out but used as a guarantee against losses. It was only to lend to nations not capable of borrowing on reasonable terms from other sources. The starting capital of the bank would be $10 billion, with voting power determined by the number and shares held by each state with no government holding more than 25% of the total voting power. Membership in the bank was made conditional on membership in the IMF. Nonetheless, many minor countries argued for making smaller contributions as their borrowing capacity would be independent from how much they invested in the bank. The United States, Canada, and China agreed to make larger investments in exchange for greater voting rights, and the United States had 37% of the vote until 1947 when it started to scale back its investments in the bank. The Board of Governors for both the IMF and World Bank would consist of one member of every country and an alternate. Typically, the two boards would meet in, in session once a year. All the powers to run the bank would be delegated to the executive director. Only the board could admit new members, increase or decrease the capital stock of the bank, or suspend a member. Executive directors would be elected for two-year terms. The British in India wanted the staff of the bank to be international civil servants, like at the UN, but the U.S. was opposed to this as they were putting up most of the cash to start the bank. 
The United States wanted to have some influence over the bank and loyal Americans in key positions of authority. In recruiting the staff for the bank, the president of the bank would not have to follow geographical quotas like the UN. The U.S. wanted the bank to be able to hire the most qualified people for the job of running the bank, no matter their backgrounds. The future location of the bank was another issue of contention between the United States and Great Britain. The British felt that the IMF and bank should be, location should be decided by the United Nations. The U.S. delegation and the U.S. Congress wanted the location of the United States. They didn't want to put up the majority of the funds to see the bank managed in another country. In the end, the U.S. view prevailed on both counts as Britain and India had very little leverage in the debates. The British conceded to the bank and IMF being in the United States, then tried to persuade the Americans to locate the bank in New York away from the politics of Washington and in the heart of America's financial system close to the U.N. In this view, they were supported by many other nations, including France and India, but again, Congress, Congress's interests trumped that of the international communities, and both the bank and IMF would be in Washington, D.C. For the Americans, the IMF and World Bank were not ordinary banks, but semi-public institutions. Moreover, in the eyes of the New Deal Democrats, it represented a transfer of authority for international capital away from Wall Street into Washington. There were also disagreements about how much the president of the bank should get paid. The Americans proposed $25,000 a year, or about $340,000 in today's funds, on par with what bankers were making in the private sector. The Canadians, Dutch, and British favored a salary of $17,000 as they saw them as public officials. Even by official standing, $17,000 a year was a high salary for a public official. The vice president of the United States only made $15,000 a year, and a member of the British Parliament made about 4000 As a point of interest, the average American bank president today makes between 95000 and 230000 according to PaceScale.com. It was assumed that the first president would be an American, given the American contribution to the bank. The major significance of Bretton Woods was that it represented a victory over the forces of economic and nationalistic isolationism. With the creation of the UN and the Bretton Woods Agreement, the United States had put to rest the voices of isolationism and the willingly taken up the mantle of leading the democratic and capitalist world order. The Bretton Woods system would define the world economy for the next 25 years in the first half of the Cold War. The Bretton Woods system that emerged was unique as there had never been an institution in which so many countries had agreed to subject important financial sovereignty nor had an international institution like the World Bank existed before. The New Deal policies of the United States and the social democracies of Europe had been applied to an international level. The U.S. Congress had overwhelmingly ratified the treaty, and in 1946, the inaugural meeting of the IMF and World Bank were held in Savannah, Georgia. Part of the reason why the bank and the IMF were easily approved was because the bank and IMF's functions were so clearly defined. The American banking lobby didn't see them as a competition. In the end, Keynes was dismayed by the naked exercise of American power at the conference. He complained that the United States wanted to cripple the British Empire. He thought that the Americans were treating their wartime ally unjustly like a vanquished enemy. He believed that the IMF and World Bank had been created to achieve American financial global hegemony. Nevertheless, it should be noted with the British, the expected borrowers, and the Americans, the expected lenders, there was bound to be conflict of interest. 
The Americans and the British wanted international institutions that favored their interests. What nation doesn't? The power relation of borrower to lender ensured the American interests would prevail in most circumstances. For many proud British like Keynes, the political realities of a declining empire which had once been known such fortune was a bitter pill to swallow. It should be noted that Keynes was rather unfond of the Americans as well. He hated most things Americans and found their sensibilities and culture odd and alien. He was, after all, an English baron coming from Cambridge University and a rigid class system. American society had long ago shed its formal class system and was very much an uncultured in his view. But this proved more difficult than first imagined. Inflation as a result of the war had tripled the money supply since the 1930s, but nominal GNP had only doubled. Private and official holdings of gold and foreign currencies had fallen by half. Only price controls were keeping inflation under control. Moreover, foreign creditors held 3.5 billion pounds, or roughly one-third of the UK's GNP, while Great Britain held, held only a half a billion pounds in gold and foreign currency reserves. If foreign creditors attempted to rebalance their portfolios or purchase goods in the United States, a fire sale of sterling-dominated assets would have ensued. Great Britain had decided to implement convertibility five years ahead of schedule in exchange for a $3.75 billion loan in 1946 from the Americans. Sterling was the most important currency after the dollar, and once it was convertible, it was believed much of the rest of the world would follow. The first six weeks of convertibility were a disaster for the British. American imports from sterling areas, which produce raw materials for trade, dropped by 50%. Sterling areas sought to convert to dollars to enable trade with the United States. Controls restricted the amount of dollars leaving the sterling block but did not eliminate the problem. Britain further tightened its controls and convinced other Commonwealth countries to follow. Still, the drain of, of dollars and gold continued. American officials underestimated the difficulty of transitioning and the economic devastation of Europe. No longer were American officials insistent about the restoration of convertibility with the dollar. Thereafter, it worked with the Europeans, stretching it out over out the, the time period for states to transition over. The United States acknowledged the catastrophic situation in Europe and allowed modest discrimination against American exports and followed up with the Marshall Plan, which we examined in Episode 9. To rebuild Europe would cost billions of dollars, and the Europeans had already exhausted their savings and liquidated their foreign holdings to pay for the war. Taxes were already high, and throughout Europe, even the rich had not had been spared the horrors of war. Their fortunes had either been taxed, stolen, or confiscated away. Europe simply lacked the funds to rebuild. Their empires were in a state of shambles and internal chaos as well. Many had been occupied by Axis forces, especially those in Asia, like French Indochina, Hong Kong, Malaya, and Indonesia. Others, such as Palestine and India, were demanding their independence. Even Europe's ability to carry goods between its imperial markets had been hobbled. The combined merchant fleets of Europe was three times the size of the American merchant fleet in 1939. By 1947, this combined fleet was less than half of the American merchant fleet. Many people around the world thought this economic imbalance would continue for decades to come. They assumed American productivity would continue to outpace a de devastated Europe. The United States would remain in a perennial surplus as Europe and Asia were locked into perpetual poverty and economic crisis. In 1948, the United States held more than two-thirds of the world's monetary reserves. Within a decade, though, its share would fall to one-half. 
No sooner were theories about America's everlasting prosperity and the rest of the world's perpetual poverty published than the dollar gap started to disappear. As growth resumed in Europe and Japan, their respective trade balances started to improve. Europe became an attractive destination for investment by American firms. U.N.'s defense uh, expenditures in the Cold War and foreign aid, such as the Marshall Plan, made the United States lapse into persistent deficit. The New World Bank assumed in 1946 that it would turn its attention first to repairing Europe and Japan and then to making development loans. Nevertheless, the project of establishing the bank and securing funds proved very difficult for the bank. As we have seen, the World Bank was far from being an international organization. The United States supplied the vast majority of its funds and was the predominant market for its bank securities. Its location was in the United States and its capital city, Washington. Its largest stakeholder further undermined its interna- undermining its international status. To this day, it's still a hotly contested issue that the bank is too Anglo-Saxon. Whether or not this is true is an issue for another podcast. Certainly, the institution that emerged from Bretton Woods in 1945 was primarily an Anglo-Saxon venture. The first issue in front of the bank was the selection of the bank president. Louis Douglas, 51, the president of Mutual Life Insurance of New York and a director and first president of Ford Motor Company, seemed the favorite of Truman. Nevertheless, many New Deal Democrats disliked his connections with big business and Wall Street's international finance, and he backed out of the consideration. Instead, Eugene Myers, a 70-year-old public servant with a distinguished public record, was offered the job. He had served as chairman of the Federal Reserve from 1930 to 1933. Except for his age, he appeared to be the ideal candidate. He was a friend of the president as well and highly respected on Wall Street, where he had been a successful broker and a millionaire by 40. Nevertheless, Meyer faced many challenges in managing the bank. He had to confront a strong board of directors for control of the bank. Much of his time was spent fighting with them over leadership of the bank. He also struggled with understanding the balance of payments crisis in foreign exchanges versus local currency requirements. It wasn't that he was unqualified to run the bank, but it's just that few people had experience in dealing with balance of payment exchange issues and the emerging problems of the post-war era were uncharted water for the world economy. Meyer did begin the process of hiring a staff for the bank, relying on friends and business contacts for recommendations. Some personnel were borrowed from the U.S. government. Many of the foreign delegates who had attended the Bretton Woods Conference were also recruited. A disproportionate number of Dutch were also hired for the bank in its early days. As a generalization, people at the time stereotyped Dutch as good international bankers, and the bank tried to hire as many as they could. With the collapse of the Dutch East Indies and NHM, many Dutch nationals found themselves working for the World Bank. Myers also traveled to New York to get additional capital for the bank from Wall Street. Though polite, they were less than receptive towards investing in the World Bank. They counted the U.S. investment as the only real investment in the bank and were suspicious of foreign governments. In the 1930s, money had suffered losses as foreign governments defaulted on their bonds. So they were hesitant in general about investing in foreign development projects. Moreover, many Wall Street bankers saw the the bank as a New Deal do-gooders organization and not a real bank. In the summer of 1946, the the bank had no real history for investors to follow if the bank would operate as a prestigious bank, as its founders had intended, a charity fund, or a corrupt New Deal global slush fund that gave money to boondoggle projects in the developing world. 
Wall Street was especially concerned with the bank's relationship with the United Nations, which they believed would politicize the bank's lending decisions. Indeed, the UN had already sent a letter to the bank seeking to establish formal relations. The bank was keenly aware of Wall Street's fears around the UN and fearing becoming an agency of the UN and losing its independence. By the September 1946, things weren't going well for the bank. Myers was still fighting with the directors over the direction of the organization. Some directors did see the bank as more of a charity than a traditional bank, and others wanted to use its funds to get their friends' projects funded. One director was pushing for a $40 million project in Chile, but Myers argued that the bank didn't have enough knowledge about Chile to make an, educa an educated decision around lending funds. The bank only had 72 employees, had failed to gather significant funds from Wall Street, and was spending $1.2 million a year without making a single loan. Worse yet, the Wisconsin State Banking Commission had voted unanimously to refuse per to permit state banks, saving banks, and trust companies in Wisconsin to invest in the bank, and there was fears more states would follow Wisconsin's example. Then, to the astonishment of many, Meyer resigned. He explained that he had only accepted the job to establish and not run the bank. Although in the end, this was probably a face-saving move as Meyer was in over his head and was failing at his post. The executive vice president of the bank took over, but he died suddenly, leaving the bank with no president once again. Seven eminent American bankers were approached for the job, but turned down the job. Finally, John J. McCloy was persuaded to take the job. McCloy had been a lawyer uh, who had worked on Wall Street and was well-respected, and he had also served in government as assistant secretary of war during World War II. McCloy had only agreed to take the role if he had firm backing of the board and the power to run the bank. He also brought a skilled team of bankers from Wall Street with him to run the bank. He would need them as the bank had been drifting on the ec and the economic situation in Europe had only grown worse since 1945. After the confusion of the first two years, many saw McCloy as a savior and the directors were more willing to work with him versus Meyer. The board of directors begrudgingly agreed to allow McCloy to run the day-to-day -day operations of the bank. McCloy had a charismatic personality and was a quick to win the confidence and loyalty of those in the bank and on the board. He became well-liked by the Europeans as well as the Americans. Eugene Black, his vice president, had been involved with marketing securities for most of his life on Wall Street and had many close contacts. McCloy, within the first two months of being president of the bank, made his first loan to France for $250 million to help with the reconstruction efforts. These were followed by loans to Denmark for $40 million and Luxembourg for $12 million. The bank operated as a lifeline to Europe for cash to buy American goods until the Marshall Plan was approved. McCloy was also able to sell the bank's first securities on Wall Street by that summer. Despite its charter, the bank's first four loans were for Western European states to finance imports. Yet the resources of the bank were, were too limited to meet the challenges that Europe faced. Only the Marshall Plan would eventually address these concerns. Again, to learn more about the Marshall Plan, review Episode 9. The framers of Bretton Woods' agreement had vastly underestimated the cost of European reconstruction and did not envision the kind of program that it would take to rebuild Europe. You might be asking, Jeff, why didn't the framers at Bretton Woods understand the destruction in Europe? And I think it's important to remember that this was a time before social media or television. What American officials did receive was from newspapers, newsreels, and government reports. 
Most of these men were working from their experiences with the First World War, where there had been a costly war in both lives and money, but physically little of Europe had been damaged. The Second World War was far different. Whole cities and regions had been devastated by the war as armies marched in one direction and then the other. Poland and France, for example, were invaded twice. With the introduction of the Marshall Plan, the bank was left to primarily invest in development projects. Nevertheless, the bank's capacity to lend funds was limited to the initial American commitment, the small commitment of other member states, and what money the bank could raise on Wall Street. In March 1948, the bank made its first development loan to Chile for two small projects, $13.5 million for a hydroelectric dam and $2.5 million for tractors. In 1949, additional loans were made to Mexico and Brazil. In its dealings, the bank tried to stay apolitical but was subject to considerable pressure. Borrowers who were socialists were suspect. Others wanted to use the influence of the bank to undermine colonialism and imperialism. Moreover, in the modern era and even today, economic policy and politics have a certain affinity for one another. The prospects for development loans to certain countries were very much affected by its political stability and efficiency with which the affairs of the government were conducted. During a considerable period of time, the bank refused to lend to manufacturing enterprises in the public sector on grounds that they were unlikely to be managed efficiently. Many argued that this and other lending decisions made by the bank were politically motivated. During this period, McCloy also established and clarified the bank's relationship with the United Nations. The UN came to recognize the fact that the bank required special accommodations to remain impartial or its ability to raise money on Wall Street would be affected. The UN recognized the bank as an independent entity and permitted the bank to withhold information from the UN. The UN also recognized the bank's decisions to either approve or disapprove loans based on the judgment of the bank and to refrain from making recommendations to the bank with respect to particular loans or conditions of financing by the bank. Many at the UN were not pleased with this arrangement. The Soviet Union attacked the bank as a violation of the UN Charter. It argued that loans to Holland were being used to finance its war in Indonesia. Norway also protested the special privileges of the bank and IMF outside of UN control, which they argued undermined the authority of the UN. Nor had the protracted negotiations between the bank and the UN enhanced the relationship between the two organizations, and the bank for many years kept the UN at arm's length. In the end, though, both the ECOSOC Committee and the General Assembly agreed to the arrangement between the UN and the World Bank. By the end of 1949, McCloy had served two years as the head of the bank and had three years left in his term. The bank had been built up on a sound basis by him and was in a far better situation than when he had taken over the bank in 1947. McCloy was, however, considering a position as U.S. High Commissioner in Germany, a position he considered more prestigious. The bank was left in the capable hands of Eugene Black, who we will follow up with when we look at the world economy in the 1950s. In conclusion, the World Bank and IMF, like the United Nations and later NATO, became part of a cluster of international organizations to appear at the end of the Second World War and would play definitive roles in the world throughout the Cold War period and into the present day. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 38. Make sure you tune in next time as we examine the establishment of the CIA and American intelligence in the early Cold War. If you want to check out photos for this episode, have questions, show ideas, would like to follow us on social media for all of our latest Cold War content, 
make sure you check out our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Remember as well to tell your friends and family about the show. If you really like this episode or one of our other episodes, please share it on social media. Don't have a lot of friends into history? Give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you'd like to become a contributor to the podcast, please support us through Patreon again on the website at the $5 level or whatever amount you feel is appropriate. As always, while there, don't forget to fill out our survey to help us to bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.